1: I have two directions I can go, and, and I'll put them both on the table so we get them out on the table to be sure that we cover them both, because if I don't say it now, I might forget it, and that could be dangerous. But um, one, one, one way is to think about you're raising the issue of design, which raises the issue of let's talk philosophically about some, uh, about some of the grounds that people have used to mm-hmm. say that God exists. So someone comes along and they say, "I don't hold to even though you've just made the point that sometimes revelation is very, very important in these conversations." Absolutely, uh, you know, if I'm having a conversation with for whom someone or the category of revelation doesn't function as a warrant, um, then uh, you know, are, are there ways to to draw them into? that conversation towards Revelation. Mm-hmm. By the way, I talk about the existence of God. That's one category I want to discuss. Mm-hmm. Second category I want to discuss is theodicy, and and uh, maybe this is the place to transition and pull out of the cash and come back to the arguments later. Here's the point that I want to make that you are making based on what you were saying earlier, Doug, and that is that if there is no basis for morality, if everything is a process of natural uh, processes in, in a material world, then where is the case for the theodicy argument that the new atheist makes?
2: Yeah, in fact, I, I think this is a critical question. Do you want to go ahead and pursue yeah, let's this? Yeah, let the other? Let's push Okay, it this.
1: let's push it this.
2: Well, this is a very interesting question. It seems to me that to the extent to which atheists want to claim that theists have a problem of evil, mm-hmm. it seems to me they have a problem of good mm-hmm. as well as evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is yet another area where the new atheist part company with Nietzsche, and frankly, I think Nietzsche sees things more clearly than they do. Mm. Uh, Nietzsche very clearly understands that if you have no God, you have no basis for objective morality. Now, Nietzsche's willing to bite that bullet. Yeah, He's willing to, uh, to give up objective morality, and that's why he writes a book called uh, Beyond Good and Evil. Mm-hmm. So for him, the concept of goodness is just as vacuous as the concept of evil. Mm-hmm. So Nietzsche's quite clear, right? There's strength and there's weakness. If there is no God, there is no good. Yeah, there is no good, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and, and it strikes me that Nietzsche is right about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is something, obviously, the new atheists want to resist concluding. Mm-hmm. But, but again, the point you're making, I think, is dead right. Uh, to the extent to which you deny that there is a God, you're not entitled to the very notion of evil, which is brought to bear in the argument typically uh, from evil against god
0: i wonder though to be fair to these guys i wonder though if the issue isn't so much that the new atheist has a problem of not having identification of good or evil as much as it is an apologetic approach that says you believe that there is a god you claim that he is good uh, and, and we have a world that's 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 really bad. And in fact, your book claims that God I- is endorsing and requiring evil. That He is even some of your preachers say He is the cause of evil. And so, so it's not so much that I, as an atheist, have to defend and define good or evil as much as it it is you, as a theist, you as a Christian have a have a really
2: insurmountable problem here. and I, th- I think that's usually the approach they they take. well, and and I think Glenn, that's a fair point, if they're willing to bite the Nietzschean bullet on this, mm-hmm. if they're willing to say, we completely reject these notions of good and evil, mm-hmm. and uh, you know if 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 they're willing to do that, if they're willing to take the Nietzschean response, fair enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Nietzsche is consistent. Mm-hmm. His view is dreadful, mm-hmm. but it's consistent. Mm-hmm. Right, but if the new atheists want to continue to maintain some kind of objective morality, objective value, objective goodness, and they
1: do make a case for that in some of their writings, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. and I think in yeah. in some
2: places, not just make a case for it, but but they protest very strongly mm-hmm. that you know that, yeah, that they're entitled to this, that's, yeah,
0: particularly that's right.
2: exactly, and I think to the extent to which they want to they want to maintain that, they've got this problem, mm-hmm. right. So if they're willing to bite that uh, you know that Nietzschean bullet, fair enough, but mm-hmm. if they're not. Then it seems to me they've got a problem here. Mm-hmm.
1: Now that doesn't absolve the the flip side of the question which you're raising on theodicy, which is the claim that well, if God has created this kind of a world with this kind of a mess, if I can, mm-hmm. I'm going to popularize it here and characterize mm-hmm. it, then and God is responsible for that. I'll I'll. Put a little touch of sarcasm in here. Surely he could have done a better job. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. you know, that's exactly it, the language. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. he, he, this is—he didn't. Uh, if we were giving him a grade, we wouldn't give him a passing yeah. grade on this. And for you to believe that that kind of a God exists, who 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 fails mm-hmm. so badly at this, um, that that really is inexcusable.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the argument from design is flipped. Mm-hmm. So if there is. This great designer, then why is there so much bad, so much bad design? And Dawkins loves to show examples from um, from the animal world of bad design. He t- loves demonstrating uh, demonstrating those. But there also it, it, there there is the um, and I lost my train of thought. So it's going okay.
2: Well well, well, well,
0: I will. I want
1: to. I want to keep on the track. How? Do, how? Let, let's let's step out of the discussion of the new atheism for a second and say, all right. And I'm not transitioning here to this yet, but but in this particular area, I am. How do how do Christians respond to that particular line of argumentation against the existence of God? What, what's what's the best way to, to think about addressing that in your view?
2: Well, um the first thing I would say um, is uh, is it's important first of all to think carefully, of course, about what the scriptures have to say about God's reasons for allowing evil mm-hmm. and uh, to be frank here, um, it seems what the scriptures basically say is God has chosen not to tell us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, It strikes me that this is in fact uh, one of, if not the. fundamental point of the book of Job. Mm -hmm. Job, in the midst of incredible suffering, cries out to God, God, why? Mm -hmm. And God's response is basically to remind Job, hey, you're not me. Mm -hmm. I'm me, you're not, and who are you to think you would understand if I explained? Mm -hmm. Now I don't think that's as harsh as it might initially sound, because I think underlying that divine response is an invitation to Job to trust God. Mm -hmm. You know, Job, you want to understand I could tell you, but you wouldn't understand, so trust me. Mm-hmm. And I think it's clear from chapter 42 and the way the book ends, Job gets that point. Mm-hmm. right? He says in the end, I, sp- I spoke of things mm-hmm. too wonderful for me to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to acknowledge up front as Christians, if the question on the table is why, in fact, does God allow evil, the truth is we don't know. Mm-hmm. God has chosen not to tell us, and insofar as he has not disclosed his reasons – uh, we're in no position to know what they are. But that doesn't mean we can't still make some helpful responses. Mm-hmm. Um, if the atheist response here is, well, wait a minute, I can't imagine what, uh, what reason you know, God might have for allowing you know, the world to be as it is if he is uh, truly all-knowing, all all-good, uh, and all-powerful. Well, that is what's known in, in my discipline as a no argument. Mm-hmm. Right. The argument is essentially this: Well, I can't see what the reason would be, and if I can't see it, there must not be one. Yeah. Well, those kind of arguments are uh, are are good or bad uh, are judged good or bad on an individual basis uh, in terms of what it is that's being claimed. Uh, one can't see. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I tell you there's an elephant in my backyard. Mm-hmm. And you look out my kitchen window into my backyard and you don't see an elephant, a no CM argument to the effect that there's no elephant in Blunt's backyard is a pretty persuasive argument. Mm-hmm. Why? Because if there were an elephant there, you'd expect to be able to see it. Mm-hmm. But suppose I told you that there's a rare species of butterfly that's very tiny flying around in my backyard, all right? and there's only one of them, and you look out and you don't happen to see it. Well, does that constitute work for the claim that there's no such butterfly there. No, that's a no see argument, but it's not a legitimate one. Why? Because the thing we're talking about isn't the kind of thing you would necessarily expect to have been able to see from my kitchen. Mm. So the question is this, from the fact that we can't see if that's true what God's argument or, or God's reason for allowing evil is, does it follow that we should, uh, should conclude uh, that he doesn't have one? And as far as I know, the reasons that an omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly good being might have for allowing evil, are not things I necessarily ought to expect to be able to see in the first place.
1: Mm-hmm. Because my field of vision is much thinner.
2: And th- Absolutely. And it, yeah. Absolutely. And so, and so, just on the face of it, the mere fact that I can't figure out why God allows some of the things to happen that He does or maybe most of the things that happens that he does, is not warrant for the conclusion that there that he's got no such reasons, or even worse, that there is no such God. Uh, and I think that's that's a point worth making up front. Yeah. I, I would also want to
0: say there, Doug, and, and that you would agree, that um, many Christians have not helped our case by in fact speaking for God, or even more troubling is attributing to God that which is not good attributing to God the cause of evil that we have to be in talking about these things we have to be very clear that uh, that that evil does exist and that evil is somehow part of God's plan for reasons we don't understand he hasn't told us but that God is never the cause of evil and that um, making that statement clearly in a world where sometimes for whatever reason people are, are saying the opposite is incredibly important. And the other thing we've got to say as Christian theologians is that um, I mean, I like the way Calvin put it when he said, we can know that what happens is part of God's plan for his world, but why He did such and such, we don't know, so we should shut up. Mm-hmm. The other thing we can say, and Calvin would say something like this too, is that, that if God is good, and evil exists, then God will one day do something about evil and that we have an eschatological hope that evil and all of its effects will one day be removed. So that there is a redemptive work of God and that he is acting redemptively in a fallen world. Now we're back to there is good in the midst of the the evil. Mm that I think needs to be emphasized as well.
1: You know, there, you're sparking so many different questions all at once, and, and right. Let me let me try and go at two real quickly. I do think there's an inherent uh, another inconsistency, kind of like we saw in theodicy in this conversation as well. and It goes like this: the very freedom to disagree and re, and reject and walk away from God that you are uncomfortable with, or that that you want to actually affirm by your life, is something that is. Mm-hmm. A part of our world, and if if you if we had the God that you think we should have, I wonder if he would give you that space. If I you get you get what I'm driving at? Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. that
2: Daryl is
0: another uh, constant theme in these guys is the the degree to which. Um, the degree to which religion has been used to remove freedom has been used to oppress and has used been used to destroy. I think there's a real sense that Nietzsche is a good place to, to start the description of new atheism, but nine eleven Mm-hmm. Put, put set this trajectory in a whole new path, mm-hmm. um, and that over and over again, Harris and Hitchens and Dawkins, I think Dennett does too, but keep coming back to what we saw on 9/11 uh, is the danger, the threat to freedom and to life on the planet when a religion has the ability to 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 treat others. In a way which re- not only removes their freedom but destroys them, and that fear um, uh, of totalitarianism, that fear of religion, uh, and, and again, you know, we can we talk about how Christianity—that's not Christianity. That's not the God right, we right. worship and serve. Uh, but that really is a, a major factor that's driving. And so, part
1: part of what I'm hearing you say, if I can. Parse what you're saying to a certain degree is, is that when, when we allow the discussion to be about religion in general, we lose the ability to particularize about the differences between faith. Right. As we talk about theism versus atheism, and that actually is a very important part of this conversation mm-hmm. to not lose that differentiation that exists within theism uh, on some of these themes.
0: Yeah, we don't yeah. want to have the conversation in a in a way that it's atheists against all religions. Christianity is not just one of many religions.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, Glenn, I appreciate the point you're making, um, but it strikes me a point worth um, worth making as well. Mm-hmm. Is this one? Is it true that horrible things have been na- done in the name of religion? Of yep. course it is. Yep. And is it true that there are some horrible things that have been uh, done in the name of Christ? Of Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But let's not pretend that there haven't been horrible things done in the name of atheism. Uh, and if what we're concerned about is the potential wickedness and the potential uh, horror mm-hmm. of totalitarian regimes let's not pretend that religiously minded people have the corner on the market mm-hmm. with respect to yeah, such things yeah i actually regimes. was
1: thinking about this mm-hmm. walking over here because one of the quotes that i read last night it was something to the effect and i won't get it exactly right but it goes something like you know man has killed his thousands but religion has killed mm-hmm. tens of thousands mm-hmm. that's the thrust of the quote and i'm walking over here and i'm thinking you know, if I look at the record of the last, of the last century um, and I look at the wars that were generated not for religious reasons but for other reasons, for, for nationalistic reasons, for, you know, uh, for racist reasons, just put a, a whole other set of categories in there, and I'm sitting here saying – and the example that popped in my mind was the Holocaust. The Holocaust was a product uh, in which religion, if I can say it this way, was the victim. It took it on the chin in the Holocaust. Um, you know, because someone was a particular race and held a particular religion, the goal was to wipe them off the face of the earth. And that that wasn't religiously motivated. That was that was motivated by something else. Mm-hmm. And, and and that was that. If we look at the, if if we're going to rank, you know, the most horrific things that have happened in our recent memory, certainly the Holocaust yeah. uh, uh, makes nine eleven pale in comparison. Mm-hmm. And, and so I almost want to reverse the quote mm-hmm. in, in the process. Um, you know religion has killed its thousands, but humanity at its worst has killed its tens of thousands
0: and most of these folks would agree with us on that mm-hmm. and would would repudiate very similarly, so it's a place where in the In the midst of a vitriolic attack in the midst of great conflict, to say you know we're 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 on the same page here, mm-hmm. so none of us wants to be a defender of the misuse of religion, any religion that's right, and so you know we we do have some common ground here mm-hmm. in which we can in which we can stand. Okay,
1: now here's the second point that I want to make off of uh, off of what was said. We still have I know the philosophical arguments are still sitting out there and we've got to talk about how we talk about this in general. So I know I've got those two topics left. But uh, here's the other one. You uh, and Dawkins makes this argument. He says what kind of a god this has to do with the portrait of God as evil – what kind of god would engage in the kind of and I don't know what other word to use other than Than the sadomasochistic commitment to send his own son and kill him and put him on a cross, you know, why would that be necessary in order to achieve salvation? Uh, And I and I think back to a lecture I gave in New York at at, at King's College. This was years ago. I was doing a thing on the historical Jesus, and someone raised their hand and saying, uh, saying, "Isn't God, in a way, kind of endorsing a kind of, of of suicide in a in a real?" Uh, sinister kind of way, by sending his son to the cross. And that was the question I was asked. Mm-hmm. And the answer that I gave is, well, if the cross alone were the event, okay, then you might be able to raise that question. But the cross alone is not the event. On the other side of the cross, there's a vindication and a life that comes out of it. That changes
3: the whole story. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by The Truths Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like,
0: If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican.
3: Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard.
0: it also changes the story when the uh, when the act of redemption is seen as a trinitarian act mm-hmm. rather than a hierarchical father son uh, act in which the the trinity is in this together but i think it also um, as christian theologians we come back to it, it, it's a matter of perspective mm-hmm. that, uh, that another very important way to look at it is the sacrificial act of this one who lays his life down for for his enemies, mm-hmm. and the, and the picture of the atonement we get in the New Testament and the Old is a is multifaceted, mm-hmm. multifold, and 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 that criticism, by the way, comes not just from New Atheists. That criticism comes in our day from um, some evangelicals who criticize. The, Absolutely, the, the, it's been the picked up. Divine child abuse. In,
2: in, in fact, um, I, I agree with both those points but I want to add a third one and it's this you know maybe we should we should back off from the claim that it is god who sets the terms for redemption mm-hmm. i want to suggest that it's adam who sets those terms mm-hmm. and thus humanity and what i mean by that is this christ's atoning work in a very uh, obvious sense it seems to me involves undoing what adam has done what did Adam do in the garden? So in the beginning, there was Adam. <laughs> well, Adam Adam in the garden yeah. didn't believe, refused to believe the Word of God, mm-hmm. and not believing the Word of God was disobedient. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you undo that? Mm-hmm. You, you undo that by believing the Word of God and being obedient in the most extreme of circumstances, which is precisely what Christ did, mm-hmm. so that maybe we should see we ourselves – or certainly Adam, mm-hmm. <laughs> as as the one who has set the terms by which atonement must be made, mm-hmm. so that we don't lay this. And and maybe we say, well, to the extent to which it's sadistic to require this, the sadists are the ones we see when we look in the mirror. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, what what has become clear to me. Uh, given where we are in the time and what we're trying to discuss is, is that we'll probably come back to this topic more than <laughs> once. But le- let's, let's deal with uh, two other things. First the philosophical arguments related to God. We talked about the picture of design. You know, uh, Dawkins has a f- famous argument that he's made that says, well, if we're going to engage in infinite cre- e- regress and ask who created the creation, then we've got to ask the question then who created God? and and we're we're stuck in a in a move going backwards and he has a chapter in which he works through he said he's not a philosopher but he at least he at least presents the various kinds of arguments for the existence of God that have traditionally been put forward you know arguments from design and and and, and such and so i thought what better opportunity than to sit back and say all right what what are those what are those arguments are they able to do anything for us at all are they a waste of time what 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 does one make of the kinds of arguments that you might make about you know uh, uh, design demands a designer those kinds of things
2: well um First of all, before we start talking about that, let's okay. not forget to come back to the question about who creates God. Okay. Because I don't want to leave that one okay. undiscussed. Okay. But that being said, uh, in the interest of, uh, of time. So you're not going to tell us who creates God? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm holding that one for the uh, sequel. Uh, we know it. Dawkins' answer is man creates God. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, so,
1: so we know that's on the table. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, Well, first of all, I'm going to restrict myself to one of the most promising current arguments for the for God's existence. But before I do that, I want to make a point of of uh, of just saying, you know, Alvin Plantinga, who's uh, one of the best known uh, philosophers and happens to be a very committed Christian philosopher, Mm -hmm. but one of the best known philosophers of the last uh, generation. Uh, famously has an article or a paper out called Two Dozen or So Good Arguments for God. Uh And not surprisingly, given the title, he thinks there are at least about two dozen good arguments for God. Um, We wouldn't have time to discuss anything like the full range of Mm -hmm. arguments that are at the very least – uh, significant. So I want and a commitment of a future podcast. We can go through absolutely, some of those. Okay. absolutely. We can do that. But, okay. but let me just mention one. Um, there are various arguments from design. Mm-hmm. There is the old fashioned watchmaker argument mm-hmm. that's famously put on the table by William Paley. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's probably not original with Paley, but he's the most famous advocate of it. Um, that's the kind of argument that was undermined by Darwin mm-hmm. and, uh, and which uh, Dawkins has in his sights when mm-hmm. he writes the book The Blind Watchmaker. But that's not the only argument from design. Uh, one of the more recent arguments from design that uh, that seems to be particularly promising is an argument called the fine-tuning argument. Mm-hmm. And this argument begins with the acknowledged fact that in dozens and dozens and dozens of ways, the world is precisely the way it needs to be in order for there to be life of any sort. Not just human life, mm-hmm. but life of any sort whatsoever, right? And, uh, and the probability of this is astronomically low, the antecedent probability that the universe would be like this, um, right? Well, what's the explanation of this? Well. There's a principle of confirmation that says if you're dealing with two different hypotheses, say a theistic hypothesis and an atheistic hypothesis, a set of data will favor the hypothesis on which the data is most likely. Well, if if you understand that principle, the fine-tuning of the argument seems fairly clearly to favor the theistic uh, hypothesis over the atheistic one. Why? Well, precisely because it's not at all surprising that the world would be fine-tuned if there's a god, Mm -hmm. whereas if there is no god, and this just happens to be one of infinitely many possible universes that could have existed Well, then the fact that we got these results is pretty surprising. And what do you do with the fact that we have a universe out there in which we have lots of worlds that have been around?
1: We think as long as we have, et cetera, where there is. Well,
2: I should back up. In, In the context of the argument, when we talk about the universe, we're talking about the total spatio-temporal uh, right. continuum, right. so we're not just talking about our solar system or our Earth. planet, okay. we're talking about the whole universe. Mm-hmm. And these facts, these fine-tuning facts, are not simply facts about our planet or our solar system. Many of them are facts about the physical nature of the, of the whole entire physical universe. And the point that I'm
1: uh, the point that I'm trying to make in responding is this kind of an anti-evolutionary argument in the sense of if if it's just a matter of random combinations of things, then why don't we see it anywhere else? And we certainly see the oh, pursuit. Yeah. You understand what I'm absolutely, saying absolutely. yeah i mean, if it, if if it just happens to come together in the right kind of way, why why do we seem to be, at least up to this point, uh, the only sphere in which it seems to be happening?
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, at, well, you know, there's a there's a line in Jurassic Park where one of the characters says, uh, you know, famous line, uh, life will find a way. Mm-hmm. Well if unguided life, mm-hmm. life that has no purpose and meaning behind it, no no designer behind it will find a way, your point's exactly right. Why are we not finding it all over the place? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe if it's true that life will find a way, what's true is it will only find a way when it's directed by the right hand.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, let's let's. Uh, do, you, do you have anything you want to chime in, or are we going to let the philosophers speak? No, we we'll the, on the philosopher
0: Okay, uh, I, I, um. I'm waiting to hear who made God. Yeah, I'm, I, that's that's. Uh, well,
1: I'm I'm sitting on the edge of my chair too. So you got you got a you got a captive audience of two. Uh,
2: no, no, and that, that's that's two more than I ever had before. So, yeah, well, it strikes me the very question who creates God is uh, shows a fundamental lack of understanding on Dawkins' part of what it is we theists believe. Mm-hmm. Right, we believe that God, by His very nature, and you see this, uh, you see this as the underlying principle behind the famous ontological argument, mm-hmm. uh, first put on the table by Anselm of Canterbury, but but certainly discussed widely, and there are a variety of versions of this argument out. But conceptually, the God that theists believe in is a God who, by His very nature, conceptually couldn't have failed to exist. Mm-hmm. So, so the very question, who created God, is ill-formed, mm-hmm. as is the suggestion that somehow there's a complexity here. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the theistic notion of God, and I don't want to necessarily remain with a the generic uh, theism, mm-hmm. right, Glenn? I appreciated the point you made earlier. Uh, indeed, the Christian conception of God mm-hmm. is one according to which the fundamental idea of deity is, is really rather simple. It's utter perfection. Mm -hmm. So that God is the one who is utterly perfect. And uncreated. And uncreated. Well, uh, utter perfection involves not being created, right? right? Because it involves not being dependent on anything other than oneself. Right. So that the very concept that theists have in mind, and Christians particularly have in mind, when they talk about God. Is is one that doesn't have the kind of complexity. I mean, we don't think God's a physical object with a kind of physical complexity, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we don't believe that that uh, that the God whose existence we affirm is is uh, a God whose being involves the kind of complexity uh, or. Uh, or whose ex- whose uh, existence needs any kind of explanation uh, along the lines of what Dawkins is seeking, mm-hmm. and to think otherwise just misunderstands what it is we affirm when we say God exists. So um, I'm going to drop
1: one more argument on the table, uh, and then we'll talk about how to how, to talk, how to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. Another thing that you often hear in these conversations is is that what what Christians do and what theists do is they make God the God of the gaps. They let the evidence go so far, and then when when the evidence stops, and they can't explain something, it's the god of the gaps. We we put God in the gap, and and we're, mm-hmm. and that's it. And and basically, what I see Dawkins trying to do is he's saying, I I want to take I want to take God out of the gaps. Mm-hmm. I want to take I want to take God out, and by taking God out. I'm taking God out of the gaps as well. Um, So, this is a very famous argument that I think I've heard in my own conversations multiple times, particularly when it comes into the science uh, discussions. Um, What are we to make of that argument?
0: Well, increasingly, God is no longer necessary mm-hmm. in the gaps because, in, uh, increasingly, science has filled in the gaps. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, uh, God is not the God of the gaps. God is the God is the ground of being. He's God the God is, of the whole. He's the God of the whole. Yeah, and, and I think many times we have been we have made it easy for, uh, and by we the generic yeah, way. Right. Christians have made it easy by 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 trying to have. Are, have both, so that when we can't explain things according to science, then God becomes the explanation, rather than beginning our worldview perspective with God and building from there. So, arguments for God's existence, arguments from design, etc., are incredibly helpful, mm-hmm. but none of them are the means by which people come to faith in God that p- people come to faith in God because of the miraculous work the spirit does and mm-hmm. um, and, it, and I just feel like that um, it, that has to be a major part of our uh, component of our methodology that, that this is where we start and it's not to say we don't have these conversations we don't provide evidence uh, and to argue from from those perspectives but um, I mean it's I, I I read it in Dawkins and I heard um, Harris say the same thing, people come to me, Hitchens said the same thing, people come to me and say, why don't you believe? You're asking me to believe in something for which you've given me no evidence. But Dawkins said it, I think, the best way possible. What you're asking me to do is to to believe, uh, to do something, Uh, that if faith means anything at all, it could only come from the God who I don't think exists. So if there is a God, he would have to give me the faith to be able to believe. It's really hard to stay. What I believe about saving faith, any better than Dawkins, dude.
1: Yeah, yeah. It certainly is the way Scripture presents it, that Mm -hmm. God delivers it. Um, I've got. Twenty-five other questions that I'm going to put on the table. Uh, this is hard for me to do. Okay, <laughs> but uh, and I'm I'm sure those who are listening are kind of in the same way. So it's clear we'll we'll have to come back to some of this because there's it's clear we've only just barely uh, scratched the surface. But in the remaining time, I want to talk about something, Glenn, that you wanted us to talk about, and that is how do we have these conversations? What if what what Advice and direction would you give in terms of of engaging someone who's coming out of uh, this kind of a worldview or perspective? I mean, you know, s- some Christians I think have the attitude of uh, someone is so far gone. There's just what's the point? So, uh, so what would you say in terms of uh, direction or advice or or even things to reflect on as you think about? Having engaging someone in this who's coming from this kind of a
0: perspective, Um, I think first and foremost we should be people who are aware of what it is we are talking about and uh, about and the those those to whom we are responding and interacting with, Um, and I think we ought to respond in a in a most charitable way. So, when although I agree that there, there's no objective basis of morality when you move, remove God from the equation. Mm-hmm. To say, as some have argued, there is no argument, there is no basis, mm-hmm. when these guys have spent hours and have written page after page after page defending a view, we can say, you know, let's talk about the view you're presenting mm-hmm. rather than being dismissive. And that leads me to the
2: second thing. And let's talk about the arguments you put on yeah. the table rather than simply dismissing uh, your view without considering the reasons you're putting on the table. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't appreciate it when you dismiss us without yeah. listening to our arguments. Exactly right we right. shouldn't treat you that way yeah. either. Yeah, I've read responses to
0: the New Atheists that, that adopt a very similar tone that Dawkins. So one one of them was a was a book that criticized Dawkins for Dawkins' tone, and then responded to Dawkins very much the same way. When you when you're offended, and we should be offended, when Christopher Hitchens uh, uh, calls Mother Teresa a fraud, mm-hmm. and on the day of his death says that Jerry Falwell didn't believe a word of what he said, he's a fraud, mm-hmm. and, and and people turn around and say Hitchens is a fraud, <laughs> <laughs> Tone down the rhetoric mm-hmm. a little bit, and um, and then I, I think finally we we ought to repudiate with all the all the passion we have the kind of harsh dismissive uh, and even cruel um, uh, uh, things that people have said about these are men and women created in the image of God mm-hmm. uh, they are they are wrong about some very important things. But they're not wrong about everything,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, they these are people that that Christ loves. These are people that we should love, um, and to to write letters or to to go and uh, and 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 to even think. I hope you burn in hell. It mm-hmm. it, it should bother us mm-hmm. that uh, it, unless God did something for him in the last couple of moments of his life, Christopher Hitchens is faced a Christless eternity, and that that should bother us. It bothers me. And have compassion for that man. Um, misguided, yes; uh, mean, yes. But a, a human being for whom Christ died. And, and, uh, and I think there's a there's a time and a place to to argue the case and to present. But the way we do it is uh, is maybe more important than what. And that we walk away. Um, saying, I'm not going to get down and play on your level. I mean, am just, just not going to do it.
1: So, so to pull that all together, you you are arguing, and I think this is something we have consistently said in all the areas that we've done the podcast in. Is that uh, is that our tone in reflecting the way I like to say it is? You know, the gospel is ultimately about an invitation mm. to come back to God, mm. uh, and our tone needs to reflect ultimately that invitation. You know, there's this wonderful passage in Second Corinthians in which Paul says, you know, we urge you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's that's the core tone that we're after. And even though we're in situations where there's confrontation, there's certainly disagreement about ideas, they couldn't be, you know, we're on opposite ends of the spectrum, however you want to describe it. Mm-hmm. In the long run, the tone that you're trying to do is you're actually ultimately trying always to extend a
2: hand mm-hmm. to that invitation. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. If you read the early Christian apologists such as Justin Martyr or Athenagoras of Athens, and these are men who are trained in argumentation, and you can see when you read them, they're very skillful at Mm -hmm. arguments. Mm -hmm. But in the end, the fundamental case they make for the faith is not an argumentative one. Mm -hmm. The fundamental case they make is grounded in the life of the people of God. Mm -hmm. You know, Athenagoras of Athens says in essence, if you want to see our view, of, our view vindicated that, that we Christians are, are speaking the truth, watch us live, mm-hmm. because we will outlive you, we will outlove you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a very important uh, uh, early Christian theme that we may have lost sight of. Mm-hmm. It's not about winning arguments. It's about loving well and in a way that's compelling. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a Chris Berman here and go back 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 even
1: before uh, before <laughs> the here. early Christian and and actually come b- back to Jesus because I think Jesus mm-hmm. shows us in his ministry as well you know he preaches yeah. the word but what does he do do his ministry is literally loaded with compassion mm-hmm. it's loaded with compassion to crowds who are coming to him oftentimes just to be healed. They, don't, they, they aren't interacting with the other part of this message which is saying, I hope you get that my healing isn't the point here. My healing is pointing mm-hmm. to something far more profound.